Hello, um, I'm, uh, for those who don't know me, I'm Cameron, a fourth year studying classics and ancient history, and I will be reading the uh, word for this uh, today. So today we're reading from Revelation chapter 6, which you can also be found in your handouts. Revelation chapter 6, starting from verse 1. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come. I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. When the Lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures, saying, Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages. And six pounds of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar of the souls, under, under the altar, the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was, was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red, and the stars in the sky fell to the earth as figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. And who can withstand it? Keep that passage open in front of you. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, that's because I'm new. My name is Matt, uh, and I've just joined the staff team here at UWA's Christian Union. So it's really exciting to be with the faithful few who braved the disease to come here in person and meet as God's people. Special hello to those of you who are tuning in online as well. It's time to get used to this. 
And I think this will be our last official in-person uh, meeting. Uh, and so before we begin the actual sermon, just two things briefly. Uh, the first is to pick up on something that Ian prayed for before. The trivia night for the first years is actually cancelled. Uh, okay, so we're sorry that we didn't pass that on to you. That's our bad. We're still scrambling and trying to get things sorted. Um, but hopefully uh, when all this dies down, we can get the first years together again. Uh, the second and more important is that as you uh, recede into self-isolation and move into your own private homes, uh, don't miss this as an opportunity to be inviting people to the CU. It has now become the easiest ever to get somebody to come to a public talk like now um, or to come along and listen in a Bible study or something along those lines. Uh, so feel free to be tagging friends and those sorts of things and you yourselves make sure that you continue to plug in because now is the time where we can, unfortunately, stop listening to the word and being under it. So that's just something to think about. Um, with that in mind, I think I want to begin. Uh, you should have an outline in front of you that will have the stuff in the talk. I want to begin with a question. The question is on the outline. For those of you online, you don't have it. The question is this. Is this the end of the world? It's a bit of a scary question, don't you think? Uh, I think when we hear it, we tend to roll our eyes, don't we? Because people have predicted the end of the world before. And always, without fail, every single one of them has been wrong. But you look out the window, you pull up your newsfeed on Facebook, and you start to think, hang on, this question isn't entirely unreasonable, is it? Uh, and I'm not just talking about right now in the present. Let's skip back in time a couple of months ago. Australia faced its worst bushfires on record. It completely devastated entire communities. And just when we thought we got relief and we got some rain to put them out, we got more rain than we could ever possibly wanted in the middle of a drought but in the wrong places, and we ended up getting flash flooding. Uh, go next door to New Zealand, you have a volcano that erupts uh, within a year of mosque shootings in Christchurch. Uh, and you start to kind of go, hang on, something is, something is happening in this world. Uh, let's go further out of field. You've got more shootings always in America, it seems. Uh, and then globally, coming out of China, you've got a coronavirus, which is slaying people left, right and centre in countries all over the world. Uh, if you didn't know, there's a locust plague in Africa, which is destroying all of their food. Um, ISIS still exists. Climate change is still a thing. And to top it all off, Donald Trump is still the president of the United States of America. It's not a... It's a scary place, isn't it? Uh, and I think the world is getting scarier. And so you've got to ask yourself the question, is this the end? And even if you think it's all going to pan out in six months' time, you've got to be asking the question, what the heck is going on? Now, usually in times like these, what do Christians do? Well, they turn to the book of Revelation and they try and match the events of today with the events that John records in his visions. Now, I used to go to a church with a man who had his own personal eschatologist. Now, eschatology uh, means the study of the last things. It's from the Greek word eschatos, meaning last. And he had a personal eschatologist uh, and, and he would send him regular newsletters from the States because they're always from the States. Sorry, Katrina, I know that's, you know, it's your heritage. You've just got to bear it, okay? Uh, and he would send these emails, and using the scriptures, he would interpret the true significance of the events of the world. Now, let's be clear here. The reflex to turn to the Bible is not wrong. In fact, it is entirely right. If you want a good read on what the world is like, its past, its present, its future, then the Bible is the place that you turn. 
Uh, and thankfully today we get to go to Revelation 6, because Revelation 6 has a lot to say about our world, our situation, but it says it in a way that you may not expect. And it says it without the need of an American guru to tell you what's going on. And so what my hope is today is that at the end of this talk, you will be better equipped to understand both the book of Revelation, but also the times in which you live, so that you will be taught how to live in those times. And the hope, of course, is then that we will live and make choices that are wise and pleasing to God. So we've actually got to figure out what this book means then, right? Let's have a look at Revelation 6. Um, if you were listening to the reading, you realise that things start to get a bit trippy here. We've had a hectic a lot of symbols and, and visions and, and images, but really chapter 6 is where things go off the rails. You have a lamb, he has a scroll, he's opening this scroll with his trotters, I don't know how that works, and as he's opening it, there are multicoloured horses of doom bursting out of the scroll, all the while it's a bunch of flappy winged creatures with eyes all over them, yelling, come, destroy the earth, and the horses roll out and everyone dies. It's a crazy image, isn't it? And so we've got to work out how do we start to unpick this image and make sense of it? Because it's not nonsensical. These are the words of Jesus. So they mean something. Well, I say we begin with the scroll. Uh, the scroll, ironically, is not mentioned at all in chapter 6. Uh, but the entire chapter is dominated by it. Now, if you remember, last week, John's vision, it took him up into heaven. And as he gets into heaven, he sees the throne of God. And on the throne of God, there's a scroll. And the crisis in heaven in chapter 5, if you remember, is that nobody can be found who is worthy to open that scroll. John actually bursts into tears. Now, why is this a problem? Why is it so significant that somebody can't come along and open a book? Well, it's because this scroll, this scroll contains the final judgment of God. It is, if you will, God's end game for the world. How do we know? Well, we know because the Old Testament tells us. And this is a pro tip, I think, for any of us who want to read Revelation. Uh, the reason it's so confusing for us uh, and all those images, the flappy wings things and that sort of stuff don't make sense, it's not because we're dumb. It's not because we don't have access to our own personal eschatologist. It's actually because we don't understand our Old Testaments. We don't know them. You see, if you read your Old Testament, you would understand Revelation because that's where the imagery comes from. So what I want to do is I want to show you where this scroll pops up, and it's in Daniel chapter 12. Um, for those of you online, you're just going to have to look it up in your Bibles. I know that's so onerous, but we fortunately have it up on the slides. So I'm teaching you to be lazy and the guys online to be diligent. Here's what Daniel says in chapter 12. At that time, the great prince who protects your people will arise. There will be a time of distress such as has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. But those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But then he turns and he says, but you, Daniel, roll up, seal the words of the scroll, until the time of the end. And so the picture of the future that God gives Daniel is a picture of distress like we have never seen before in human history, and one in which the people of God will finally be delivered and the enemies of God will finally be punished. But the details of that scroll, they're rolled up, they're sealed until the time of the end. 
And as much as that sounds terrifying, if nobody is found worthy to open it, then justice for the oppressed, judgment of the wicked, the redemption of the righteous, none of that can come. But thankfully, we hit Revelation 5, and Jesus comes onto the scene. He is made ruler over all of God's created order, and he is found worthy to open the scroll. And so all of chapter 6 then is concentrated on Jesus, who is systematically breaking the seven seals one by one in order to unleash this time of great distress upon the world, because in doing so, he will bring about final and lasting peace to that world. And so what this means then, is that Revelation 6 is giving us a privileged insight into just what is going to happen at the end. And so the question then becomes, what's in the scroll? And when is it going to happen? And those two questions I'm going to answer, but I'm going to start by doing the when before the what. And to do this, I need two volunteers. And we don't have much time, so can I just get two people to come up? Maybe um, you want to come up, Josh and Pam. Um, I've got here in my hot little hands a scroll. Um, if you just come around the front here, you can unfurl it so everyone can see. Um, this scroll belongs to my wife's grandfather, no, great-grandfather, uh, and he made this scroll of the book of Revelation. Feel free to clean around. This will teach you not to sit right on the wings. You can't see it, can you? You should have sat in front. Um, and, and the reason I want to show you this scroll um, is because it shows us how some people uh, try to interpret Revelation. Now, what he's done here is he's tried to map out the future according to the book of Revelation. And, and for those of you who are close enough, you can see along the top, um, you have a chapter-by-chapter chapter summary of Revelation. But the thing that I want to show you is, is down the bottom here, underneath that, um, you'll see that he has a chronological order of the events of the, that are described in the book. Uh, and according to this, I'll come around and try and show you. Um, the four horsemen of the apocalypse in Revelation 6, they turn up around here somewhere um, after the letters to the seven churches in chapters 2 to 3. But sometime before this period called the Great Tribulation, uh, which comes down on the earth for apparently three and a half years, and then God turns up. Okay, so we can, you don't have to roll it down, you just put it down on the ground and we can have a look at it later. Um, thanks for holding that up, guys. Um, the reason I want to show this to you is because it illustrates how people typically understand the book. They read it literally, and they read it chronologically. And so what that means then is they come up with this solution, which is that um, they have this chronological sequence of events in history that will fall upon the earth, but then accumulate in God coming back. And so then what they try to do is they take those catastrophes in Revelation, and then they look at the catastrophes in the world, and they, they, they try to match them up in such a way that they can predict the end. So let me give you an example. Um, Take, for example, horseman number one. You would have seen this in the reading. He's bent on conquest. He's conquest. Well, hang on, that becomes Hitler because he invaded Poland. Uh, horseman number two, uh, which we see there is removing peace from the earth. Well, that, that must mean World War II then, right? Like it logically follows. Horseman number three, which we'll see in a moment, is famine. Well, there's plenty of famines. Let's just pick one because horseman number four is death and pestilence. And that's the coronavirus, which means this is the end and we're all going to die. That's how they do it. Do you think that interpretation holds up? No. Uh, and we know that because we read Revelation along with the rest of the New Testament. You see, the Bible is one book. And what that means is it doesn't contradict itself. It interprets itself. The clearer parts guiding and constraining the meaning of the less clear parts. 
And so in this case, we've got to ask the question, where is the end of the world described with more clarity than Revelation 6? Uh, now, ironically, I'm going to take you to Matthew 24, which has had interpreters scratching their heads for 2,000 years. But there are some things in Matthew chapter 24 that help us understand Revelation 6. Two things, in fact. Um, the first is that in Matthew 24, Jesus tells us that we can't predict the end. Now, you might remember this. You know what he said? You remember what he says? It will come like a thief in the night. And what that means is we cannot predict the end. If you knew the thief was coming, you'd stay up with your shotgun. But the reality is you never know and you get hit and you're surprised. And so that's what he's saying here. You will not know that I'm coming back. The second thing he tells us, and I think this is even more significant for us understanding Revelation 6, is that Jesus mentions all of the things in Revelation 6, but he mentions them in a different order, and he mentions them as though they are happening at the same time. And so what that means is that as we read this passage in a moment, we can't hold to the order of the horsemen literally, and we can't use them to predict the end. And what that means is we need a different reading strategy. So what I want to suggest to you is this. Revelation 6 it is not describing successive stages in world history. What it's actually describing is one undifferentiated period of time beginning 2,000 years ago when Jesus came to the earth, he died and he rose again, and continuing into the future and ending at some unknowable point in the future when Jesus returns to judge. And don't miss the implications of that. One undifferentiated period of time. What that means is the end is not yet to come. The end has come. It's not projected out there in the future events uh, that our personal eschatologists discern for us on our behalf. You don't need to locate the end because you are in the end. And we know that's true, don't we? Because of how the rest of the New Testament speaks about the end times. It tells us that we're in them. Uh, some verses for you to consider. Acts chapter 2, verse 17, Hebrews 1, 1 to 2. We're told that we are in the last days. The ones, and I think this is the key verse, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11. The ones upon whom the end of the ages has come. And so the point where Jesus rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, was found worthy to take that scroll, the end began. And so far as scripture is concerned, what that means is that you and I, we are all part of the last epoch of human history. And so a minor correction to what Josh said at the very beginning of the PM. Revelation is not just about the future. It's actually about the present. And that affects everything. So that's the question of when. We know the when. What about the when? Well, good news, guys. We're finally in the passage. You'll be pleased to know that CU is still a Bible-believing ministry. Uh, we had to do a lot of groundwork to get there, but now we can run and run fast. What do we learn about life in the last days? Well, scan your eyes down there. Have a look at chapter 6, verse 2. Um, living creatures calls out, come. And what do we see? A white horse rides out, holding a bow, given a crown. He rides out, conquering, bent on conquest. So first of all, what is the last days characterized by? Well, it's characterized by conquest. The horse is white, which at that time was the color of victory. He was given a crown, which is the symbol of victory. So what does that mean we should expect in the present? Well, invasions. And have we seen them? Yes. From Rome's expansion in the early centuries of the first millennium 
all the way through to the military expansion of the Holy Roman Empire in Europe during the Middle Ages, to the nationalist invasions of World War I, Japan, Germany, and World War II, um, ISIS, even down to Russia invading Crimea a couple of years ago. We see conquest. Second, what do we see in the last days? Well, we see war and violence. Look at verse 4. The second horseman comes out. Um, he is on a red horse. That's the color of blood. And he leaves bloodshed in his wake. He's given a sword and the ability to take peace from the earth. And so whether it's wars or ethnic clashes or religious persecution or personal disputes, what we see is people killing one another. Have we seen it? Absolutely. Just turn on the news. Third, the last days will be marked by famine. Look at verse 5. The third horseman comes out on a black horse, which then was the colour of famine, and he's holding a set of scales, which were used to ration out food during food shortages. And what we hear then in verse 6 is a voice from among the four living creatures, and this is what he says, two pounds of wheat for a day's wages, and six pounds of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage... I've lost it. Where is it? The oil and the wine. Now, what's that saying? Well, those prices that you see in that verse uh, are 12 to 16 times the average price of that food. That's bucket loads. Can you imagine spending that much on a bag of spaghetti? It's not that far away, is it? Have we seen it? Not really. I think the closest we've gotten is toilet paper shortages. Um, but if you go to the shopping centre, even today, you'll be shocked at how much is empty and how much you can't buy. But even disregarding that, you go to Africa, you go to Asia, you go to India, I mean, that's a third of the world's population collected altogether, and you can't miss it. The last days will be, have been, are marked by famine. Fourth, death, verse 8. Fourth horse rides out. Death and Hades, which is the place of the dead, uh, they ride out and they, death rides out on a pale horse. Technically speaking, it's actually a pale green horse, which doesn't take much imagination. That's the colour of the corpse. And what he does is he kills a quarter of the earth's inhabitants with the sword and famine and plague and wild beasts. And do we see it? Every history book, every news feed, every continent. Yeah, we do. And so the picture that builds as the horsemen gallop into our world is a world that is subject to torment and affliction and death. But here's the thing to get in all of this. Every single part of it is a part of God's just plan to right the wrongs of the world. In other words, what I'm trying to say is that there is actually a Lord of the last days. Now, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, it's one of those images, I think, which has captured the public imagination. Right? And if you've got eyes to see it, they're everywhere. Um, I think Tim Wise put up something on Facebook just before um, today. It was a pump-up song, Metallica's The Four Horsemen. Uh, don't go there for your theology, but you see them turning up. Uh, X-Men, Transformers, they're there. Uh, Terry Pratchett's Discworld, if you're a reader. The TV shows like Charmed and Supernatural. Uh, the Horsemen have been attributed to people like Richard Dawkins and his atheist friends. Um, they're in a book on marriage breakdown. Uh, even Apple and Google have been declared two of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. But the thing to get in absolutely every one of these examples, and you go on Wikipedia, the list is insanely long. The thing to get is, out of all of 
these portrayals, out of all of the portrayals that I have seen, I have not once seen them uh, displayed and shown as anything but agents of chaos, evil agents of chaos. But the Bible isn't saying that. In fact, the four horsemen come from Zechariah chapter 1, Zechariah chapter 6. This is in the Old Testament. Remember your symbology. You've got to know it. And there, the horsemen are betrayed as God's agents of justice. Now, they're there. They're chomping at the bit. They want to go and patrol the earth. But God doesn't let them until he tells them to. And we see the same thing in Revelation 6, don't we? God's living creatures at every point, at every seal. They yell out, come. And it's only then that the horsemen ride. You see, they don't wield their own power. Their power is given to them by God. I don't know whether you notice that, but as you skim through the passage, you start to see it. Um, the first horseman is given a crown. The second horseman is given a sword. They're given power. And so what we can conclude then is that they are ultimately God's agents released into the world at his command, not to wreak senseless chaos, but to bring this world to an end. So the question I think we have for us today is to ask, do we see them for who they are? Do we understand them? I've just finished reading or rereading the Harry Potter series, because uh, what do you do when the world's ending? Well, you go find comfort reading and you end up in Harry Potter. Uh, and the thing that, that gets me um, is Thestrals. Do you remember the Thestrals, the, the, the big black wing things that you can't see until you've seen someone die? And it like, completely reshapes everything that you've ever seen, right? Because all they've been there all along, but the first four books, you've got no idea. You just thought the carriages didn't have horses and no magical. It turns out they just had invisible death creatures, right? How many of us look out into the world and see the catastrophes, see the coronavirus, see the deaths, but don't see God's judgment? You see, I think the horsemen are, are sort of like the festivals in that it really takes something catastrophic like the coronavirus, something like death, to wake us up and see what has always been there behind reality. But up until now, we haven't seen. So much so that it reshapes the way that we view the world and the way that we live in the world. And that, of course, leaves us with our final question for today. And it's the question that I want to finish with. Spend a bit of time here. Having seen them, how do we live in light of them? Do we just stock up on toilet paper, buy a subscription of Netflix, and then self-isolate under? Well, I think Revelation tells us two things, and it speaks to two different types of people. But the first is Christians, which I take is most of you. It tells us to wait. And second, for those of us who aren't Christians, it tells us to be warned. We're going to look at each one of those in turn. First, if you're a Christian, you wait. Now, Jesus, he opens the fifth seal, and we get a perspective change. They change the camera angle on us. Up until now, what we've seen is the great tribulation of the end has been indiscriminate. It's affected everyone who dwells on the earth. But when he cracks that fifth seal, we find out that throughout that general tribulation, Christians are not only not spared the horsemen, they've been specifically targeted in amongst the chaos. Cast your eyes down there to verse 9. When he, that is Jesus, opened the fifth seal, 
I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. And they called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? And so what we see here is that among the wars and the contentions and the murders and the strife, all the things that have plagued humanity from the very beginning, there is another war. And that war is waged against the people of God, waged by the people of the earth. And don't miss that subtlety. People of the earth, the inhabitants of the earth, that's John's phrase in Revelation to describe a world of sinful humanity. Christians are among it, but they're not included in that description. And what do the Christians do? Well, they cry out for relief and for justice. They are being killed for their faith. They're held to the word of God. They're given testimony to him. And they want justice. They want it to stop. And we should want that too. It's kind of hard to imagine, I think, given that we're in Australia and the worst thing we can do is have someone call us an idiot, a mindless moron at a university. Where's your IQ? But I found this out on Tuesday. Like, you're kind of vaguely aware that it's happening, but... But Tim, at the talk on Tuesday, said, did you know how many Nigerian Christians have been killed this year alone? Take a guess. Not a rhetorical question. hundred. A hundred? A thousand. We're not even at the end of March. Extrapolate out. That's 4,000 Christians killed in one country. There's 198 countries in the world. Technically a few more if you want to include places like Taiwan and that sort of thing. But um, depending on, on which list you get... Let's just go with 200. You can multiply that out. Obviously, some countries are better than others. But that's devastating, don't you think? And yet what we see here is God gives them a white robe. A robe that we'll see next week is the symbol of their certainty of salvation. And he tells them to wait. Now, that doesn't mean they're being dismissed. I think when we look at this, we see the tenderness with which God clothes his martyrs. And that tells us that it isn't the case. But he does tell them that, that there's this phrase here, just a little longer, he says. And this promise completely flips the way that we as Christians live in the last days. We are no longer able, that we don't have to face them with terror. We don't have to worry how people are going to respond to our views on sexuality, our stance on abortion or euthanasia, um, the fact that we don't lie, that we don't steal that we do things that cost us. Uh, instead, we face the last days with a determined confidence that frees us for godly action. Because we know our relief, we know our vindication is coming. And so what does that look like? Well, without shaking hands with the Vulcan salute, it means that we're actually able to care for the sick. We're able to stand up under persecution. We're able to share the hope that we have in these last days with those who are in terror because we have hope and the terror has been removed by Jesus. And it enables us then to witness to the word of God in this hard and trying time because we know that no matter what comes, whether it's vitriol or, or insults, even to the point of death, we know that God is not only mindful of us, but he guarantees us both our redemption and our vindication. It's an accounting for the way that we have been treated, and he will give it to us. And let me tell you, for the believer in Africa, whose family has been slaughtered, whose daughters have been raped, 
because he is a Christian, that is no small hope. These are perhaps some of the most precious words we can find in the scriptures. We will have justice, and we will have relief. But in just a little while. And so we're told to wait, to witness to the word, to hold fast to the faith, and wait. We're going to talk a bit more about this next week, so please tune in online. I'm probably doing this from my spare room or something like that. Uh, but for now, that's enough. Uh, second, if you aren't a Christian, this passage tells you to be warned. Now Jesus, he opens the sixth seal, and it's with this seal that the day of judgment, the end of the end, finally comes. And where Jesus promised relief for believers, well, he only promises terror for those who aren't. Have a look there at verse 12. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. Don't know what that is, but it's scary. The whole moon turned blood red. The stars in the sky fell to earth as figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. Again, that must be scary to see. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. All of these are symbols of the day of judgment. You'll find them in the Old Testament. But just for a moment, try and put them all together in your mind and think about what that is describing. What that's saying is our whole, stable, familiar world is being ripped apart like paper. And you know the thing to get from this? That's not the scary part. Keep reading. Verse 15. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, in other words, everyone in the world, they hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? You see, the terror of the day of judgment is not the disasters. You think toilet paper is the worst of your worries. You think running out of food is the worst of your worries. No, it's the face of the Lord. Now, I don't know whether you've ever wanted the ground to swallow you up. Um, I can only remember it happening once, and it was in year three. And it's because I accidentally announced to class that I thought Emma Lowe was pretty. Now, that's a story for another time. It still scars me to this day. But do you know what I did when I said that accidentally? I threw my chair over my head and I hid under the desk. Do you know why? It's because as my peers looked at me, they could see for a brief moment into my very agony. And I wanted them out of there. How much more then the face of stares down from heaven and sees absolutely everything that you have ever done. I think without exception we would call the mountains down at once, wouldn't we? Because before the wrath of God none of us will stand. And so what this tells us then is that we need to repent. The four horsemen of the apocalypse, they're not just the beginning of God's judgment on the world, but they're a warning that at a certain unknowable point in future, it could be today, that judgment will fall with unavoidable and terrifying force. 
Now, I appreciate that as we read this, a whole bunch of questions have popped up. Uh, the big one for me at this point, and perhaps for you as well, is, well, hang on, what about the randomness of this? Not everybody is being affected in the same way. It seems senseless, doesn't seem just, doesn't seem fair. Why him? Why not her? Why me? Why not him? And rather than give you like a fully fledged theological answer to that question, I actually want to just take you to the words of Jesus himself who answers that question in Luke chapter 13. Speaking of some Galileans who were unjustly killed, he says this, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them. So that's an accident, right? Do you think that they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. You see, I think, I think that our mistake is to presume that nobody deserves the horseman. So when somebody gets hit, it's unfair. But, but the reality is that we are all sinners, and therefore we all deserve them. And so the fact that death and Hades are only allowed to touch a fourth of the earth is actually a mercy from Jesus. He restrains his full judgment on a sinful world to give you and me an opportunity to repent before his final judgment falls. So the question I want to leave you with is will you? Will you see the horsemen for what they are? The beginnings of God's judgment on the world and a warning of God's coming final wrath. And if you need to, will you repent before it's too late? How about I pray? Father, we tremble before you knowing that left to our own devices apart from the blood of Jesus, we would one day face you and would not be able to stand. We thank you for your mercy, that your judgment was not swift and final and decisive, uh, but it is playing out bit by bit and that you give us Revelation 6 to know it, to be warned by it, to be instructed by it, so that we can live well in the last days, submitting to the Lamb who sits on the throne who is worthy to open the seals rather than living for ourselves and ignoring you who rules this world. I pray that you'll give us heart and strengthen our weak knees to continue to witness to you. I pray that your word will become precious to us in this time and that you'll give us the strength to wait and to witness. I pray too for those of us who need to do something more fundamental than that as well, that you'll come before you in fear and trembling and receive the salvation that you freely offer. We ask all of this in his precious name.